Hello and welcome to an appetizer episode before the Cook County Chapter Summary Podcast Season 2 kickoff. That's right, we are back starting March 2016. In the meantime, I figured I'd tease your taste buds with a quick teaser talk. Today we'll be covering what happens when people get too high. Oh, <laughs> it was in this shit, man. Mostly Maui Wowie, man. Yeah? But it's got some Labrador in it. What's Labrador? It's dog shit. What? Yeah, my dog ate my stash, man. No, no, no. We're in Cook County, not Colorado. I'm talking about high-altitude-related illness. I'll also be talking briefly about deep-sea diving medicine, because that's obviously a huge concern in the landlocked Midwest. Seriously, though, this stuff is all over the board, so let's get started. With the mind of a Neanderthal, the athletic ability of Helen Keller, and a morphinoid body habitus, Please welcome John Hardwick. First, let's talk about high altitude related illness. Before I go any further, you must know rule one regarding high altitude medicine. At least on the boards, the right answer is always descent. So if you're ever climbing with Scott Stapp and his band Creed and they're like, we feel sick, but... Don't be charmed by Scott Stapp and his frog voice. Just say no. No, Scott, I'm not taking you higher. To make things simple, try not to think of altitude as the problem. The real problem is hypoxia, and it so happens that with every step a hiker takes higher into the atmosphere, the hypoxia gets worse and worse. So all the altitude-related illnesses are simply a manifestation of how this progressively worsening hypoxia is affecting your body and how your body is compensating for that hypoxia. Granted, this is a gross oversimplification, but for our purposes, it'll do. The organs most critically affected by ongoing acute hypoxia are the lung and the brain. So how does the lung react to hypoxia? Think of pneumonia. In pneumonia, the lung senses a focal area of poor aeration and very smartly shunts blood away from that pneumonia by constricting that area of the lung's pulmonary vasculature. This clever response is great for focal hypoxia, but in global hypoxia, it becomes maladaptive. When all lung zones are hypoxic, the pulmonary vasculature everywhere clamps down, leading to acute pulmonary hypertension. This acute onset global pulmonary hypertension is thought to lead to increased circulatory shearing forces and capillary leak and thereby lead to acute pulmonary edema. This process is called HAPE or high altitude pulmonary edema. People with HAPE first will notice that they have a decreased exertional tolerance or dyspnea at rest that is worse at night. As the symptoms worsen, the patient may develop fever, cough with frosty sputum, tachycardia, and if untreated, hate can progress to death. So now you're hiking and someone's dyspneic. What do you do? Follow rule one of high altitude medicine. Get them to a lower altitude to where the symptoms resolve. You can also use medication to directly treat the pulmonary hypertension. Nephetapine works well, but even better, and this is why I always climb with Hugh Hefner, is Viagra. 
That's right. As you know, Viagra is a potent pulmonary artery vasodilator, which is nice because it also can help with pitching a tent at base camp. All right, that's enough about the lung. Let's talk about the brain. The brain is a total glutton when it comes to oxygen. It just can't stop eating it. So what happens when you're in a high altitude, hypoxic environment? Well, the brain increases blood flow to suck up all the oxygen it can. The increased blood flow leads to increased cerebral pressure and eventually cerebral edema. The first symptoms of this intracranial hypertension are manifested in what we call acute mountain sickness. This is the most common of all high altitude illnesses. Basically, patients with acute mountain sickness will complain of hangover-like symptoms, a headache, nausea, and fatigue. To prophylax against this, you can take acetazolamide, which helps you pee out bicarbonate and creates a metabolic acidosis, thereby leading to a compensatory increase in minute ventilation, which means, yep, you guessed it, more O2. Now, I know this challenges the dogma that ventilation only affects hypercapnia, not oxygenation. But what I'm saying about acetazolamide is supported in the primary literature and it's the best explanation out there, so I'm gonna take it. Anyways, you take acetazolamide about two days before you start your ascent, and this should help acclimate you and your climbing team before you head up. To further prophylax against acute mountain sickness, take your time. Slower ascent allows for better acclimation. If despite your best efforts, you still develop acute mountain sickness, treat with, yep, you guessed it, descent. Treat the headaches with NSAIDs and the nausea with Zofran. Since this is also considered kind of a minor cerebral edema, you can treat with dexamethasone as well. The more severe spectrum of acute mountain sickness is HACE, or high altitude cerebral edema. This is the most deadly form of high altitude illness, and you don't have to have acute mountain sickness first or pulmonary edema to develop HACE. Haste can sneak up on you, so you must stay vigilant. Haste is comprised of headache, nausea, vomiting, and most importantly, altered mental status or ataxia. Patients should be asked to tandem walk in order to assess for this cerebellar ataxia. Treatment for haste is, wait, wait, you're kidding me. Yeah, it's descent. Dexamethasone and acetazolamide are also indicated. If you cannot descent, you can use a portable hyperbaric chamber to dive the patient if you have it available. So there you have it, high altitude illness in all its glory. So treat acute mountain sickness, hape and haste, all with descent. Now let's move on and talk about the opposite side of the spectrum, deep sea diving illness. We'll break down deep sea diving illness into ascent problems and descent problems. Ascent problems we're gonna cover are pulmonary overpressurization syndrome, or POPs, air gas embolism, and decompression syndrome. Pulmonary overpressurization syndrome, or POPs, is pretty simple. Say you dive down to the sea floor with the scuba tank. Your whole body is under pressure, as well as the air you're breathing. Think of the molecules of all that air all tightly next to each other, chilling inside your lungs. All of a sudden, you see a great white in the distance. 
you soil yourself. You panic. If this shark sees you, it is over. You frantically kick towards the surface, towards the boat. As you rapidly ascend, all those tightly packed air molecules start to separate from each other. And as they do, they rapidly increase the volume of your lungs. Bigger and bigger and bigger until pop. You blow out an alveoli and push all that air into your mediastinum. People with pops actually generally do pretty well as the entire lung rarely collapses. They might have some chest or neck crepitus, but are generally just monitored while their pain is treated. If you happen to get an x-ray, you might see something called the continuous diaphragm sign, which is where you can see the entire diaphragm traversing behind the heart without any difficulty and is pathognomonic for a pneumomediastinum. Some unlucky folks, instead of blowing air into the mediastinum, blow that air directly into their pulmonary vasculature, causing the dreaded air gas embolism. This can cause stroke, cardiogenic shock, or critical bowel or limb ischemia. These patients will generally surface, feel okay, and within minutes become obtundent or symptomatic otherwise. The typical board question is a diver surfaces, is talking to you, and then becomes unconscious within minutes of surfacing. These patients must be dove in a hyperbaric chamber. IV fluids and supplemental O2 should be given as they are transported to that chamber. So, air gas embolism needs hyperbaric chamber. Let's move on. Decompression sickness, more commonly termed the bends, is another dangerous complication of dive medicine. At the bottom of the ocean, high pressures force nitrogen, typically an insoluble gas, into solution. If you rapidly ascend, the gas dissolves out of solution and nitrogen bubbles collects in whatever fluid medium the nitrogen was originally in. Typically, this is synovial joints leading to arthralgias or lymphatic fluid leading to a diffuse reticular rash. Both are self-limited and can be treated with supportive care and pain control. These non-neurologic manifestations of the bends are termed type one decompression sickness. Type 2 decompression sickness involves the central nervous system as nitrogen gas bubbles pop up in the cerebral spinal fluid. Bizarre neurological findings with multiple different lesion foci may occur and the patient may become obtundent. Type 2 decompression syndrome progresses over hours. So to reiterate, unlike air gas embolism, which occurs in minutes after surfacing, type 2 decompression syndrome occurs hours after surfacing. So obtunded within minutes, think air gas embolism. Obtunded within hours, think decompression syndrome. We'll quickly cover two descent problems, nitrogen narcosis and O2 toxicity. Nitrogen narcosis is actually pretty simple. At depth, nitrogen can dissolve into the CNS and thereby act like nitrogen gas or laughing gas. This is harmless while on land. We just act like idiots. You're crazy, you're crazy, man. You're crazy. I like you, but you're crazy. <laughs> the difference is nitrogen narcosis. While at 100 feet below sea level, you don't have the luxury to act like an idiot. At depth, the disorientation leads people astray, and even as their oxygen is running out, they just keep swimming. Oxygen toxicity is also really simple. 
Oxygen is a CNS toxin at very excessive levels. As we deep diver, we get more and more oxygen as the partial pressures increase. Initial symptoms are nausea, vision changes, muscle twitching, and eventually seizure. The board's question for oxygen toxicity is a patient who has a seizure while at depth. So seizure while diving is generally oxygen toxicity. Get the patient back to the surface and the symptoms should improve. All right, that's it. Your appetizer is over and a brand new season of the Cook County Chapter Summary Podcast is all that much closer. We will see you next month where topics will be acute cardiogenic pulmonary edema, valvular emergencies, and syncope. If you want to make any one of those talks or have a critique, email me at hardwickjohn2013 at gmail.com. Again, that's H-A-R-D-W-I-C-K-J-O-H-N-2013 at gmail.com. As always, this podcast does not represent the views of Stroger Hospital, Cook County Human Health Services, or the Stroger Emergency Medicine Residency. We will see you next month. Thanks for listening.